Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. On War. Defensive Battles. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Earworm Network. I am Yaga Malark. The topic of today's episode is defensive battles. But before we get into that, uh, touching on a couple of things. Uh, first off, I'm recording this kind of the middle of the week before this is coming out. And you know, there's a full moon, and I don't know about the rest of you, but I, I feel like lunacy is a word for a reason. And that like the, the, you know, the full moon just brings out so much energy. I become so much more creative around the full moon. I, I, I have harder trouble sleeping, all that sort of thing. And I'm sure some of you have noticed the same. Uh, I know folks who have worked in ERs or with uh, police departments, and they always say that things kind of get crazy on the full moon. So there's something to it. There's something to it. And I imagine that it's influenced battles in the past. I mean, you, you do hear all sorts of um, tellings of, of course, battles happen whenever they do happen. And... You know, actually, at the moment, I'm I'm thinking about it, and I want to go make a study of that. Noted. I'm putting a note down. <laughs> make a study of battles that occurred during a full moon and see if there was anything wonky that happened then. But, uh, yeah, uh, this is kind of coming off of uh, another awesome uh, series of events, which is uh, yesterday I had a game with Toto. And you all remember Toto. He's an excellent uh, meta-analyst that we've had on many times. And he was using his Grey Knights. And I was using my Deathwing, which is a Dark Angel, kind of Terminator-specific. And it was such an evenly matched game. Like, we, we were just kind of entrenched apart from each other. Nobody was really venturing out into the no-man's land because they knew that they could get countered by their opponent's forces. He was even controlling the amount that he was blipping around on the field, which was very impressive. Because that's the biggest danger with Grey Knights players, is that they can teleport their people wherever they want to on the field. And the fact that my positioning was keeping him from doing that, well, I was very proud of that. Right up until I got cocky. And, I, and the only unit that I had on the field that was not a Deathwing Terminator of some sort was a group of Black Knights. And so I'd ha I had some uh, Deathwing Terminators that I dropped in from orbit. There was one, a captain with a power sword, two dudes with uh, lightning claws, and two dudes with chain fists. And so they were just looking to wreck something. And I dropped them down in a good position to do a charge. And I got that charge and was doing decently well. But then as that started to dwindle down, I then dedicated my Ravenwing Knights to the, the, the same kind of conflict. And that's where, th where things went awry. So I lost this five-man chunk of Terminators and my entire Ravenwing. Which was huge. That was my maneuverability. That's what I was using to kind of like maintain and put pressure in various places on the line because they were my dudes that could move. And I overextended and I, I charged the unbroken infantry with cavalry, which, as we know, 
not a great idea. So not only did that hobble me, but in the process, because I had expected that action to go differently, I had moved away from the edge of the board, leaving a gap behind me, hoping that he would teleport somebody back there and that I, I could like counter charge or receive the charge even because, as you know, the Deathwing Knights are all good in combat. There's not a single one of them that doesn't have a power fist or a chain fist. Everybody can hurt you. So looking for that kind of engagement, it hinged <laughs> on this, this one action that didn't happen. And so I did not maintain my patience. And afterwards, of course, we're analyzing it, and I knew exactly where my game went awry. And I don't mean to say that like he wouldn't have won otherwise. He was playing a very good game, and it was a very tight game. It was only about 10 points difference between us, so it was not a runaway by any means. But that error there certainly cost me quite a bit. Quite a bit in points, quite a bit in ground, quite a bit in uh, just everything. That was a deciding moment in the game, as it were. So, he played an excellent game. I'm looking forward to the rematch, especially when I'm able to reinforce my Terminators a little bit more, um, get some more bodies in there. They're a bit more varied, which is what I'm working on at the moment. And, uh, of course, I'm getting everything painted. This is my first time uh, fighting with a fully painted Dark Angel army. Now, granted, they're, they're painted in the colors of my custom successor chapter, but I play them as Dark Angels, and it was really cool to get to play them on the field and then have our frontline gaming mat down, which was, we were using the snow one, because we live in Montana. We have like over a foot of snow here right now. So I was just like, let's have a battle in the snow. And here in a couple of weeks when we're tired of the snow, I'll use my new uh, swamp one and we'll pretend that it's <laughs> warmer than it is. Uh, so yeah, it was very much fun. Very much fun. And from there I went to Gladiators. And Gladiators is always good fun. These kids, they keep you in shape because they have that youthful vigor that one loses when you start to become middle-aged. And they, they keep you on your toes because I can no longer fight them through simple physicality. You know, there's a, there's a lot that you can get away with when you're younger to kind of compensate for technique. That is not a possibility anymore. Technique is what I have. <laughs> That's, And I mean, I still have some speed. I still have some strength. I do work out. But the reliance on those things is reducing, and I'm having to for, like really shore up the other. And again, that full moon energy, it just had me going, and I had an amazing day. Normally, I, I, I go with a, a slight disadvantage. I go with a weapon style that puts me at a disadvantage to my students so that I'm not just walking all over them. But... If those of you, those of you who know what a heater shield is, I decided to bring one in because I had been talking about their efficacy, but I was having a hard time explaining exactly how they work, exactly how the positioning provides the amazing defensive cover that they, that it does. So I thought a practical demonstration would be the best. And then the full moon energy caught me and I just raffle stomped. And I think, you know, it, it's their club. I'm not there just to practice my moves and beat the crap out of kids. Don't get me wrong. But every now and then, I think it's good for them to see a veteran in their top form. So they don't just start to think, oh, okay, this is very mellow. This is, you know, this is all going to be very much the, like the way Malark fights, which is very deferent and gives us space. And then it's just nice to have a game where it's like, I am rushing everyone. I am moving at speed. I am not holding back. I mean, I wasn't swinging full force, but skill-wise, I was not holding back. And... Yeah, it felt good. And I think it got the point across that a good fighter with good gear is really dangerous. Which, you know, that's a lesson unto itself. 
talking about uh, the wargaming that I did with Toto and also with this Gladiator program, I also wanted to kind of touch on wargaming groups in general. And whether they be like a small group of friends that are gathering every now and then to play Warhammer 40k games with each other, or whether it be a realm or a club like Gladiators, there are certain things that we need to do in order to keep those things alive, or to keep them going, or banned even for that matter. Um, and a lot of this can be found in our episodes on morale and on you know troop maintenance, because it's kind of the same idea. We just have to make sure that we're maintaining our energy, maintaining our communication and commitment. And, and again, I would, I would recommend going back and listening to some of those episodes because they absolutely contribute here. And if I had taken my own advice, you know, from 2020 kind of onwards, I might still have the larger gaming group that I did. But a lot of them fell by the wayside, not because they're, you know, they're bad people or flighty or anything like that, but because the excitement drained out of it, the engagement and drained out of it. And so what was left was just, you know, a bunch of rules to memorize for no particular reason. You know, if I'd particularly, you know, engaged more, if I had, like, been more vocal and more involved in the group's maintenance, it may have stuck around longer. Now, I have still have great opponents. I still have Turkey Feathers, which is outstanding. I still have Kaji, which is outstanding. I've taken up Toto, which is also cool. And I've got a few others that I'm working with. Like, I really want to play more games with Soren. He is amazing and destroys me so so viciously and i must learn from him <laughs> i i must become a disciple of this man because my word i love getting a butt whooping like that because it reminds me that i have so much to learn and a gaming group can help you with that you know having people of different skill levels having people of different army types this can really help us improve as people but we have to maintain those groups as well they don't just exist out of nothing they are a living, organic thing that needs sustenance. So this is, this is a good thing to remember. And like I said, go back and listen to some of those morale episodes, and let's see if we can implement that a little bit more in our communities to give us some more cohesion. And before we get into this, I wanted to warn you, and you may notice, of course, by the episode length, that it's just me again. Um, it's not that I, don't, that I couldn't get interviews, it's just that I've been very busy. And trying to schedule something with other people when they work normal people hours and I work night people hours, it can be kind of tricky, especially when there's a lot going on. Um, I've got a couple other jobs, of course, that I'm working too. Not that that, not that that matters for this. I don't mean to get overly personal. But just to say that um, the interviews will be coming back quickly, much faster than the history section will be coming back. And that will hopefully be coming back sometime soon too. And also, as always, the YouTube video on the 12 Shots. Uh, well, now that I'm finished cracking wise, I think it's time for us to get into the main topic of today's episode, which is defensive battles. As previously discussed, we have established that a defensive battle is one in which we await our opponent, in which we are anticipating what they will do and planning some form of counter-reaction. This is what we're looking for when we talk about a defensive battle. Now, immediately when I got into this section, I found something that I kind of wanted to pick a fight with Klauswitz about. Now, much like the sanitation that we had talked about many episodes ago, I, we've been on Klauswitz for so long, I can't keep track of of which one it was. 
Uh, but we had talked about how he had died from cholera, right? And it had been during a military posting in Eastern Europe when cholera first was introduced to Europe. And when, I, when that happened, I picked a fight with him saying that, you know, sanitation should be something involved in military science because it is very important to the way the enemy fight or the way that our army fights. If our army is, you know, currently suffering from smallpox or um, cholera or COVID or whatever, they're going to be a far less effective force than they would be if sanitation was required. So in the same mind, when he says the end and result, not the course of battle, constitute a strategic quantity, in, in part, I do agree with him. I mean, obviously, uh, it's, it's all means to an end. And if we have, uh, at the end of the battle, we have uh, taken all the objectives and reduced our opponent to a minimal force, well, then that would constitute a, a strategic quality, right? It would, it would be something that we can use later on, not necessarily the course of the battle that dictates how that goes. And with the result, we're also including there the number of troops who have been lost. And so that the, the end, how it ended, victory or, or loss, and the result in terms of damage to our own self, of course, are that strategic quantity. But the fight I want to pick is that throughout the course of the battle, there are things that to be gained from that as well. The first one is experience, which is like when we're dealing with ourselves, we're figuring out which tactics worked. Which moves worked? What, what did we do that actually contributed to our victory? And how can we do that again the next time? Because we carry those lessons forward. It's not just a matter of being like, oh, okay, well, I got defeated. I'm moving off. You know, much like last episode, when I was talking about my fight with Soren and how sorely I was beaten, well, the only thing I can do at that point is work on myself, see in my, with my experience which tactics failed me in what way and how I can move forward and, and use the lessons that I've learned to improve my gaming the next time and hopefully maybe beat him sometime at some point when he has the most terrible dice luck in the world and I happen to have the best and then I win. <laughs> that would be nice. Or through sheer skill, through sheer skill as well. And secondly, one of the other things that we gain from this is not just knowledge of ourself and knowledge of what worked and what our limits and what our abilities are, but also our knowledge of our enemy and what they are capable of. If, if we have multiple battles against a person, multiple fights against a person, the more that we fight them, and if they are beating us, the more that we learn from them. We learn how to defeat them and thereby learn how to use those tactics to defeat others. I see this happen all the time when I'm teaching my students. They spend four years learning with me, and by the end of it, they're decent fighters, but they are really good at one thing in particular, and that's fighting me because they've been fighting me for, for four years. And it makes for some excellent fights because it's also usually like fighting a mirror in some ways. They take on a lot of what they're learning. You know, these younger guys and gals, they take on what they're learning and they're able to apply it very specifically. We all do this. We all emulate somebody and then kind of make it our own. I know that here locally, Vallis, was somebody that just about everybody wanted to emulate. His aggressive shield work and his very precise uh, shots that he'd throw. He's not a flurry of blows sort of man. He was a uh, he is. I don't know why I'm talking about him in the past tense. He's still active in the in the East, but we miss him here in Stygia. Um, but through learning through him and kind of mimicking some of his things, I learned a lot of what I do. Same thing with Sumatai, who's been on the show. I've, I've mimicked a lot of the stuff that he did in order to learn. The basics. Now, 
After that, once we've established our familiarity with various styles and find things that worked based on mimicry, at that point we can start to pick and choose the various bits and form them into our own style. And that's important, I think, because if we're able to form our own style, then we're able to be a unique creature. That, you know, people are like, okay, well I've fought, you know, one person from here, I've fought everybody from there. I've, I've been and fought certain realms where that seemed to be the case where everybody had a very, 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 very similar fighting style. And once you figure out how to fight one of them, you can kind of, you can kind of get them all. So the idea of developing something unique and individual, well, that's based on both of these elements, right? And this happens during the course of a battle where we experience for ourselves, which are the lessons we've learned in the past work and which we want to carry forward and the knowledge of our enemy and how to better change ourselves to fit the situation, adapt to the situation to defeat that enemy eventually. Because defeat is what we're going towards. So now moving on, let's talk about the actual defensive battles themselves. And I want to reiterate, and I know the last several episodes we've said this, but it's important enough to continue saying that a defensive battle is not wholly defensive. When nobody is ever going for an absolute defense, we are always looking for the elements that contain offensive qualities, right? We're looking for counter attacks. We're looking for sorties. We're looking for pursuit. Even if the battle itself is defensive, we need to have these offensive elements in order to make it a positive result at the end. And not just a, you know, a tactical victory, but something that actively contributes to our strategic positioning. Well, Clausewitz kind of paints a picture, and I want you to relax with me, and if you're able to, close your eyes. If you're at work or driving, obviously, please don't. I don't want you to get in trouble or hurt yourselves. But if you can, close your eyes, and we're going to picture together the ideal defensive position, as described by Clausewitz. And again, this is an ideal defensive position for turn-of-the-century warfare between the 1700s and the 1800s, that kind of decade or two there. That's what we're talking about. So we're dealing with those kind of wool uniforms and cannons and muskets. All right, so let's make this picture. We are a commander, and we are waging this defensive battle against someone. And so we have done two things that are exceptionally important and that paint the ability of our army to prepare, like perform in the area. The first one is that we have selected the proper ground. And the second is that we have altered it to suit our needs. So first, let us picture this proper ground. Well, to, need, to do that, we need to be well acquainted with the locality. We need to have the intel and the reconnaissance to make a good decision concerning proper ground. And so time and effort is required to be able to do this. If we are fighting a defensive battle, it is easy to do because we are on home turf and we are able to consult with locals who are hopefully going to be helpful to us. So for our own sake, picture a place in your mind that you know to be defensible. Something you've pictured on a, a hike or walk. Some place that is a good spot to draw up a defense. And in doing so, we also want to make sure we have a place where our masses can wait in cover. In terms of Clausewitz's times, you don't want to have a muster point, if you will, that does not have this cover because then your opponent can just rain artillery down upon your force <laughs> who is not engaged. So to do this, we need to have cover from either trees or hills or walls, something that reinforces our point, something that may have already been there, where our people can 
can have cover so we can prepare them in peace. This place also needs to have high commanding points for our artillery, hilltops or such that are nearby so we, so we can look at the ground. This is also for observation because we want to be able to see the, the ground around us. We want to be able to have a good eye for where our opponent is and how they are moving. Also, the artillery, which is the king of the battlefield at this particular time in history, has a great view of what's going on. They can take their pick of targets while the enemy advances towards them. And lastly, when we're picturing our perfect place, let us think of a point of support to anchor our flanks, something solid, so that our enemy has a harder time getting around us, whether that be a river or a cliff or an ocean or a bog of some sort that is extremely hard to traverse, something, something that is an obstacle to our opponent making solid moves towards us. So we have this place that we have pictured in our mind, a place that has a good place for our, our troops to wait in peace, high points to put our artillery and put our observers, and also something that we can anchor against, something solid to eliminate danger on one of our flanks. In the terms of something like Belagarth or 40k, we have an edge of the board. It's right there. Anchor away. But picturing in our mind, of course, this tactical situation, or, yeah, tactical situation. So if you have your image in your head now, now let us move to how we have altered it to suit our needs. Well, first part, we're going to need entrenchments and batteries. And so the entrenchments are areas for our troops to be on our front and on our flanks to give them an advantage. So that be actual trenches, foxholes, bunkers, something that we have built, something that we have made so that our, our people can be in place and still be protected. They can observe the enemy and be protected from the enemy while the enemy makes themselves vulnerable. And the batteries are for those high commanding points that we had spoken about. They are the places where we're going to put our artillery. And the battery, for one thing, needs to be secure so the artillery doesn't slide down the hill, but also it needs to be in a place and be fortified to such an extent that if our opponent is able to train their artillery on ours, that we are able to sustain that, at least temporarily, until it can be relieved. Next, we would want to fortify nearby villages and make sure that we have garrisons in them and that they are in of themselves defensible. Because villages often are in very advantageous places. They are places where there is food that is gathered because if they were in an agricultural zone or minerals and industri industry, if we're in that kind of zone, they often are on made main thoroughfares, which is what we need to take to be moving through the country. Roads make things a lot easier. So occupying these villages and fortifying these villages really hampers our opponent's ability to move around on the field. And lastly, we are looking to make their approach more difficult. If any of you have seen movies concerning the landings at Normandy, you'll see these bizarre spiky things, like gigantic caltrops, all over the place. And the reason those are there is to, again, break up the enemy advance so that people have to split and are dr driven towards the bunkers where the machine gunners were. And so the approach being made difficult, again, we can use trenches, we can use 
barricades, we can use palisades, something to break up our opponent's force and make it harder for them to make concerted attack against any point on our line. So if you've got this pictured, it should be a very nice defensible position. Again, we're located in a nice, secure area where our army can wait in peace, high commanding points that are fortified for the batteries and our artillery. Our front has entrenchments and, and reinforcements to give our troops places to be where they can threaten the enemy without being overly threatened. And lastly, we have made their approach more difficult with anything from caltrops and landmines to barricades and walls. Now that we have this defensive position pictured in our mind, we also have to understand that even though it is a very good position, we cannot endure forever. We had talked about that last episode, that a pure defense is not a valid plan. So how are we able to handle this situation and make it so that our defensive position doesn't become our tomb? Well, first off, we need to have reserves. And so we picture our reserves in the back there. They are there at the ready. They are not idle. They are there to reinforce and protect our flank if it starts to fall. They are there to reinforce our rear and protect our line of retreat or our lines of communications. They can also be used in sorties to disrupt our opponent or, if our opponent is weak on one side or the other, to try to turn their flank and drive them away. But always... Always we are looking to protect our line of retreat. No defensive position is worth dying in if we're not able to get out of it. Sieges are awful. Nobody wants a siege. And what we need to understand, as defenders in this particular case, is that we are always in danger of envelopment, even if we do have a flank anchored on one very secure side. We are always in danger of envelopment, even if we can minimize that risk. So knowing this, we come back to the idea that a defensive battle is not wholly defensive. Even if we have this excellent place, if our enemy is allowed to set up and get into perfect positions and move according to their plan and hit us according to their timeline, well, that's not going to work. So we need to make sure that we are also in a position to hit back, that we are in a position to use our reserves to the best of our ability in trying to repulse our enemy. And victory, of course, is the idea. So if we do achieve our victory, we need to also be in a place, as I said, to be able to pursue. And if we are able to pursue with great energy, if we're able to move in such a way that we either drive our opponent in dis disarray, away from this particular point, away from these lands, or if we're able to engage them and force a surrender, this great energy, we can still yield this positive result. Just because it's a defensive battle does not mean that we cannot yield a positive result. It just means we need to do some serious follow-through on what happens at the end. Because great victories, if we look back in history, the majority of what we would call great victories have happened on the offense. You have somebody who's invading, coming, you have to think of Alexander the Great coming into an area and overwhelming the defenses, the Blitzkrieg moving into an area, these, these highly talked about offensive victories, offensive campaigns. There can be great victories defensively, but they're not very common. So we're not looking for a huge decisive victory here when we're doing a defensive battle. We're looking to defend something effectively and then repulse our enemy and hopefully carry on with a pursuit that yields some sort of positive result. 
So to reiterate, when we're dealing with a defensive battle, again, we're not looking to be absolute defensive. We're looking at chances to counterattack and put our opponent on the back foot. When we're looking for a good place to stand our ground, we of course have to select the proper ground and alter it to suit our needs, which is to say we need to be well acquainted with, what, with where we are, where we can place our people, how we can place our artillery, and what we can anchor against. How can we reinforce our flanks? And of course, once we've found this place, we alter it to suit our needs by use of entrenchments, batteries, fortified villages, and things that make the approach difficult. And then we fight our defensive battle. Now, last episode, I had talked about the idea that we were going to talk about fortresses. And originally, when I was reading through this section, I didn't necessarily want to because I was like, fortresses don't really feature a whole lot in what we're doing. And then I started to think about it and I was like, well, wait a second. Within something like 40k or, or, or War Machine or any of those other games, there might be a narrative game where there is some sort of fortress. Or even in a match play game, some sort of uh, terrain that can be heavily reinforced or a lot of people can go into that counts as a fortress as well. And within uh, Belagarth, I've absolutely been to events, I've absolutely been to realms that used some form of fortress, whether it be just a hay bale fortress that you could, you know, move through and, and fight in, or whether it was some sort of elaborate constructed fortress that was actual wood. But whatever the case may be, we do see fortresses on occasion, so I wanted to, I wanted to kind of touch on them a little bit in terms of overall strategy, of course, within uh, human history, but also their usefulness and how to use them best when we're on the field or on the board. So first and foremost, fortresses represent both defense and offense. And both of these qualities grow with the numbers inside there, but I don't have to tell you that. More people is always better. So with the defense, of course, it offers protection. It is a place that is physically protective of, the, of it and the area around it. But also it is offensive because it creates this sphere of influence, whether it's got large guns or whether it's a place that you can just sally forth from that is secure. It also extends our offensive capabilities. So fortresses are very important. And let's, let's talk a little bit about their uses. First and foremost, they can, they're a secure storage place. We can put weapons there. We can put material there, food, whatever the case may be. A fortress is a great place to have a secure storage. And having these arsenals that we can uh, draw from, well, it's, it's exceptionally important. And when I've seen it on, on the Belagarth field, you can do this too. You can use a fortress as a place to store arrows or to have alternate weapons. You know, I've seen people who are in there and they basically brought in an armory and when they were up on the walls, they were shooting, and as the enemy got closer, they'd go down and put away the bow and grab a spear. And this was, you know, all over the place. And so this secure storage, something that we can use and know it's there, and it can't be accosted by the enemy immediately, that's awesome. Or particularly if we're fighting like a campaign out in the wilderness, and we have a fortress nearby that we can draw food from, that's amazing. An army marches on its stomach. So that fortress, even for that reason, is incredibly important. Our second use of a fortress is the protection of important towns. We had talked about how certain places may have an agricultural or an industrial advantage. And so having a fortress that is in a place to be able to protect that town defensively and off offensively is incredibly important and will preserve that town should the enemy come a knocking at it. 
Our third use is to create a real barrier, a real barrier that the enemy has to encounter. So if we talk about maybe a fortress that is in a, a mountain pass, a pass that is one of the only connecting areas between one area, or was, it's like the one connecting place between two areas. We have a fortress that is right there, a real physical barrier to our opponent moving through that area. Well, this is also incredibly important because we can use that to make our opponent move in the way that we want to or engage in a costly siege against said fort. So this kind of strategic positioning in terms of controlling terrain is also a great use of fortresses. Before, when we were speaking about defensive battles, we had talked about having something to secure our flank on being an ideal thing when we are selecting our proper ground. Well, what better object or, or thing to attach our flank to than a fortress that, again, has all of the above-mentioned things. It's a real barrier. It's going to block our opponent from hitting that flank, physically going to do so. And it's something we can draw from in terms of storage. So having it as a secure point for the flank is a very good use of it as well. Our fifth idea here is a secure line of communication as well. Remember that in just about every single battle that we will ever be in, and very rarely not be true, there needs to be a line of retreat. There needs to be a way to maintain lines of communication with other folks, with other commanders and other armies in the area. Well, Fortress is a fantastic center for using that and for securing that line of communication because it is so difficult to topple, so difficult to take over and disrupt. And so if we're using one, as we were sallying forth, and we're using it as our, as our kind of go-to, what we go back to, and we're using that sphere of influence for our offensive campaigns, our offensive actions, having that secure line of communication that we, we know where it is, and we know how to talk through. I mean, that's the other thing to talk about. We, we talk about this chaos of war. And in these days and age, we don't have it as much because we have radios that we can talk to between various units. You've got aerial uh, elements that are able to communicate exact positionings wherever they are. And so it is not as important in this day and age to have this. I mean, you still do. We still have command centers that people operate from. But at the time of history that we are talking about, it also represented a place where we knew it was. We've talked before about some of these campaigns and people not being able to get in touch with each other and kind of things falling apart because one person moves this way, another person moves this way, and largely it was because they didn't talk. They weren't able to communicate because, perhaps, they weren't able to find each other. A fortress is a place, though, that anybody can find because it is a fixed position. So, good for securing our lines of communication. Another huge advantage for the fort is having a refuge for a defeated or a weak force. If we are falling back from the field of battle, or we are trying to avoid an enemy who is stronger than us, a fortress multiplies our efforts and, again, physically protects us. So using it as a place to lick our wounds or regroup while we have a strong defensive position is a fantastic use of a fortress as well. Our seventh use for a fortress is, again, a real shield against enemy aggression. And in this particular case, let us think not a physical barrier, like we thought of before, but a mental one. 
where our opponent is considering it in their plans, and it is a mental block against our opponent, perhaps even a deterrent. If we've placed it in that you know, geographically difficult location, or our opponent physically cannot get past it, well, this can also have a psychological effect on the opponent and kind of drive off their aggression to a particular area. Nobody wants to engage in some sort of futile thing that they know they're not going to win. And so the presence of an impregnable fort someplace absolutely deters our opponent from wanting to be aggressive in that particular area. Our eighth use would be the protection of our extended garrisons. And so that they're, they're not just strung out and in the open. And it can contribute even to some of these garrison necessities by blocking a main road. As we had discussed before, especially when you're using wagons and uh, artillery, <laughs> wagons that are necessary for moving them around, roads were incredibly important in this particular time, at this particular type of warfare. And so having a fortress that blocked a main road was huge for protecting everything about what was behind it. Having a place also that has complete observation, a fortress that is built in such a way that it can relay information back because it has excellent observation of the surrounding area, that is also an excellent way to have this protection of the extended cantonments, as, as he would say. It also acts as an advanced core. Remember, as we talked about pursuit, you know, the advanced core is something that goes out first and can it can engage the enemy more quickly than a large force can. Well, we can keep an advanced core right here. So if we do manage to drive the enemy back and they are on the back foot nearby, this advanced core can sally forth, fresh and ready to go. And in that same idea, it provides a place for a protected muster, for a place to bring troops together so that they can prepare to go elsewhere. That is a huge part of this protection as well. Our ninth use of a fortress is to cover a province that is not occupied. So something that we do not want to physically be in at the moment, but still want to try to have control over, a fortress does very well for this. Because of the aforementioned reason, reasons, it can be used to control a part of a province without a large force needing to be there. Really, a, a garrison is all that is necessary. All throughout history, we see this done. And it is an extremely useful and necessary method of controlling areas and, and not having to leave too much behind to maintain that control. Drawing somewhat back to the first idea of secure storage, it can be a place for the general arming of a nation, acting as a place where those things come together. So if we combine those elements of a storage area and a protected muster point, well, those two things together form this area where we can arm a nation, where we can have the forces and have the material all in one place, all protected, ready to sally forth and meet our enemy. They make fantastic ways for doing that too. Think about just about any fort. If you live in a state with a fort or in a country with forts, and I guarantee you that most of us do, that would be the place that would be the center of any offensive capability. Even here, we only have a reserve center here. But if something went down, that area would become the center. It would become a fortress, if you will, and the focus of the general arming of the area. Lastly, our 11th use for fortresses is the defense of rivers and mountains. We had talked about using them as a physical shield or as a, a mental shield 
against our opponent if we place them in strategic areas, like near river crossings and mountain passes. They can be used again to direct the flow of our enemy. This is a strategic version of what we would be doing defensively by putting in uh, things to make the approach difficult. Again, landmines, caltrops, various things to, to break up the battlefield. We can also do that with fortresses on a strategic level and force our opponent to engage us where we want them to. So to go over those again, 1 through 11, a secure storage, a place for protection of important towns, real barriers, a secure point for the flank, secure lines of communication, refuge for a defeated or a weak force, a real mental shield against enemy aggression, protection to the garrison, which is to say blocks the main road, complete observation, advanced corps can be there, and a protected muster point, covering a province that is not occupied, a focus for a general arming of the nation, and also a defensive point for strategic areas concerning rivers and mountains. So when we're dealing with this, we've already talked about how to select a place for a defensive battle, how we want to have our proper ground, and how we alter it to suit our needs. Fortresses kind of go along a similar principle, but because they are permanent, they're not like a, a, an army. So when we're talking about a defensive battle where our army is moved into an area and we're shoring it up for a battle. But we're not going to be there forever. The idea, of course, is to go on the offensive after we have won this defensive battle. So we will be leaving this particular area, leaving this terrain, to go fight elsewhere. A fortress is permanent. A fortress stays there for as long as it is standing. So our, our selection of location is, again, somewhat similar, but it does have some rather glaring differences. The first of which is that it is very effective to put it near principal roads. And in this particular case, those would be the roads that lead to and from our nation. When I'm playing Civilization, for instance, and if I build a uh, camp, you know, a, a, an encampment in order to kind of extend my reach and have my military place to build things up, I will often build it on roads that have been connected to me through trade routes because that will be the fastest way that my enemy can get to me, right? They're, they're able to go along those same roads. And so if I have a physical fortress blocking them, that helps me control their movement. And it's a great location for a fortress to be. But we also have some decisions because often we don't just have the one encampment in civilization or just the one fort when we're dealing with large strategic things, but we have multiple that we can build. And so our choices here are, do we build them on the frontier only? Or do we spread them throughout the country? There are a few advantages to both. If we relegate them purely to the frontier, well, then we are able to kind of reinforce it a little bit better. If we put the same time and material, the same number of fortresses, let me say, along the frontier, we're able to protect ourselves from multiple directions and probably able to kind of get overlapping fields of fire and creates a strong wall or like at least a, a you know a psychic wall around our territory. Now spreading them out inside the country can also be good because it will break up our opponent's advance. We can put them in various strategic areas to make our opponent again kind of go where we want. And so depending on the way we fight and kind of the terrain that we have and the expectations we have for combat, this is is going to kind of decide whether or not we place our fortresses exclusively on the frontier or whether or not we kind of spread them about in the country. I typically place mine on the frontier and trust in my garrison or in my standing army 
to defend the interior, but having that solid point to deflect enemy attack and to get them hung up, I think is huge. But, you know, it, it's I, I imagine that there's people out there who disagree with me that say, no, having multiple points that you can draw from throughout the country would be so much better. So this largely depends on the commander and on their preferences. We would also have to decide whether or not we would want to distribute these fortresses uniformly or in groups. So uniformly we mean to spread them out at you know equitable distances in order to get the best coverage of the country. In groups, this would mean that we have multiple kind of supporting fortresses that are near each other or near extremely critical things. So near a, uh, a large pass or a river crossing and we have a couple of fortresses around it on a shore. If we have a, a collection of fortresses that are along a shoreline to protect against some sort of sea invasion, this is possible too. And again, the the advantage to having them d d built in uh, groups is that they can support one another. Is that you have these these bonds and these realms of protection that extend over them. And so you have multiple protection of a particular area. And if that's something valuable, like an agricultural or a industrial area, then those multiple fortresses can be really useful for making sure that that area does not fall. Or again, we can distribute them uniformly, make sure that we have good coverage throughout the country, which is to say using them for good storage and muster points is a good way for that. If we're, for instance, if we're spreading throughout them throughout the country and we're doing it uniformly, the uses then become less offensive in my mind. They become less of like a physical use of the fortress for combat and more of a use for fortress for controlling the flow of strategy and having strategic areas that we can draw men uh, or you know soldiers and material from that would be my idea of the use there so you have the you know on the outskirts or whatever is kind of offensive expecting battle but when you scatter throughout the center they're going to be more supportive to our forces moving to and fro and then lastly when we're dealing with selecting a location as we kind of talked before geography are we putting them in mountain passes where they're going to be able to defend us from an incursion in that area, along coastlines, along river crossings? These things matter. The geography matters. It also matters in terms of what it's going to be built out, how long it's going to take to be built. When we're considering geography, we also want to consider the surrounding land. Is it hospitable? Is it a place that we can draw supplies from? That is important as well. So when we talk about fortresses, we're looking for ways to use them in their, in their best light. You take their advantages and use them to their best. And so we're looking for fortifications in terms of on roads, whether or not we're going to have them on the frontier or spread out, distributed uniformly or in groups, and then making sure that we're making the, the biggest bang for our buck in terms of geography. And if we're able to do these two things, if we're able to think about defensive battles as a, as a mobile version of kind of the fortress, and a fortress as a permanent version of a defensive battle, we can make the best use of both of these. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. 
And again, you can find those at earvrm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark signing off. <laughs>